how do you know when you are freaking out? Or to put it in more clinical terms, what does your body do when it is suffering from acute anxiety? What's that fight or flight stuff all about? And most important, how can we learn to manage it before it damages our health permanently? Today, we're talking about the physiological correlates of anxiety, or more specifically, why your body does that when you're fearful, anxious, or scared. We'll explore why these reactions exist, how they used to be helpful, and most importantly, how we can start to manage them before they damage our health permanently. If you've ever wanted to understand your body more when it's in that panicky, anxious, icky phase, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every other Friday. I am very glad to have you here with me today. We're still getting used to this every other week schedule, so it feels like a little long between episodes, but I'm glad that I'm still hearing from so many of you despite my incompetence on social media, but it is really, really good that somehow so many of you find a way to stay in touch, which is wonderful. So I know in our most recent episode, we talked about just in general, the physiological correlates of different emotions, and really starting to pay attention to how your body feels when you feel certain emotional feelings. So many of my clients, that's such a game changer for them. They really never truly noticed in the moment exactly what their bodies did when they were mad or when they were sad or when they were feeling guilty or ashamed. And the beauty of learning how your body responds to those emotions is that the emotions get less scary. They feel less out of your control. You're able to manage them better. You're able to be more mindful in your body, understanding its sensations and feeling less threatened by them. So you're less likely to feel that level of anxiety on top of the emotion about what is my body doing? Why is it freaking out? Or thinking that it's something to be avoided. You're able to move through emotions more smoothly and more functionally when you can kind of lean into them and understand the physical reactions are natural. And especially with anger, you're less likely to fly off the handle and let that physical tension push you to do something that you're going to regret. Remember, as we always say, experiencing an emotion never has to be a bad thing. Anger, it never has to be wrong or bad or dysfunctional. It's what we do with it, how we experience it, how we act on it that matters So many of us, we equate difficult emotions with acting dysfunctionally on them, right? And so instead, if we can learn that things like anger management are not about avoiding anger, but rather about experiencing anger and letting it lead to more functional behavior because we're not as overpowered by it anymore, that's really the beauty of all of this. So we went over a lot of basic emotions last time. But what we didn't spend so much time on was the idea of anxiety, which honestly, this is probably the biggest, most physical emotional experience that people have when it comes to feelings, right? Because it's so wired into our body. As you probably know, 
I'm an anxiety disorders specialist. So I've been learning about anxiety, teaching about anxiety, treating anxiety for a couple of decades now. It's really where my clinical passion lies. And unfortunately, the numbers really show us that anxiety disorders are incredibly prevalent, even more prevalent than they were pre-pandemic, and the numbers have not gone down. And even just typical people who aren't suffering actually from anxiety disorders are reporting more anxiety symptomology. So that's a huge, huge problem. At some point, anxiety disorders pretty much overtook depression as being the most common disorders in the United States. It feels like an odd type of thing. Hooray, they want a prize now. You know, my specialty is now making more people's lives miserable even than depression is. It's like, well, that doesn't feel so right. But it just tells you how crucial it is that we understand this. So I wanted to devote a whole episode to thinking about anxiety and how we should address it and specifically thinking about what your body does in anxiety. Because the first thing I want to say about this, although it's not really the first thing, it's like the 17th thing, but let's start fresh with the first thing. What's really important is that you recognize that anxiety is not bad. It doesn't have to be bad. It can get excessive. It can get dysfunctional. It can be miserable. It can get in your way. And then we have to address it. But the actual general idea of anxiety serves a lot of purposes, right? On, a, on its own, it's not bad, especially when it's not severe, okay? And again, I'm not saying you should sit with an anxiety disorder and not have it treated. I'm saying the concept of anxiety as a whole does not have to be bad. And in fact, it exists for a really, really, really good reason. Anxiety really helps us steer clear from danger. If we didn't detect threat, if we didn't have that response, that sensitivity, we probably wouldn't make it past our 17th birthday, right? We would just not avoid the things that we should avoid. We wouldn't actually make good decisions. We wouldn't know when there was danger because we wouldn't feel it. We are evolutionarily primed to sense danger and try to avoid it. Of course, some of us run towards danger for various reasons. But the important thing to recognize is that when anxiety is working correctly, it keeps us safe. It's very functional. It actually gives us strength in the moment to fight off a predator, which we'll talk about. Now, for many of us, anxiety has ceased to be helpful because it's so excessive. It's not helping us in the moment. If we are oversensitive to threat, for instance, which a lot of folks suffering from anxiety disorders do, all of our alarms are going off in our nervous system, even when there's no actual threat, right? It's not that a cave bear is going to eat us like it would have been tens of thousands of years ago. It's that somebody at lunch said something a little bit hurtful, and now we think that they don't like us anymore. And now we're having the same fight or flight response, and that's not helpful. Or we just have to give a speech in class, and it feels like a four-alarm fire in terms of our nervous system. So obviously, it's on a spectrum. There's a point at which anxiety is no longer helpful for us. But there's a point at which it is. I love teaching in my classes about the Yerkes Dodson Law. You know, it's really old. It's 120 years old by now. And the basic version, there's lots of permutations. It gets more complicated. But 
the basic version is that all of us need a little bit of arousal to do our best performance. And no, I'm not talking about sexual arousal, although obviously that's true in that case too. But the idea that if we're totally blah and just on the verge of falling asleep and really not caring about anything and not anxious at all, we don't have any spark. We don't pay much attention. We don't have much energy. There's no sort of juice keeping us interested in the moment and able to do our best work. Of course, it varies by person, right? Some people need a ton of anxiety. They're beating their hands against their chest before they go out after halftime from the locker room, right? Other people, if they drink so much as a coffee, whoo, I am over the edge, right? So for each person, it varies. But for all of us, there's that middle ground, there is a point where our anxiety is actually so low, or more specifically, our arousal, which is a little bit more complicated than anxiety, but we can kind of use them somewhat synonymously in this oversimplified version. If it's too low, we're not going to be able to function, right? So keep that in mind. And that's why I love talking about this stuff, because I don't want to pathologize anxiety. And that's really strange for somebody who specializes in the disorders of anxiety. But the truth is, anxiety as a whole has really kept us safe, and it exists for a reason. Okay, for some people, they'll say, yeah, my gut instinct, I didn't feel good about that. There was something off about this situation. I was fearful. I didn't trust this person. Something felt weird. And that ended up saving them. Now, that's not to say there aren't false alarms. But the general gist of anxiety is that It helps us not fall off cliffs, right? Literally and metaphorically. So what I want to get at now is the specifics of how we feel this in our bodies. And most of us know, oh, I start to sweat. I feel like I can't breathe. My heart goes really, really fast. I feel butterflies in my stomach. Of course, most of us know this. We've experienced it. The question is, what's our body trying actually to do in that moment? Where did it come from? What's its purpose, right? Because believe it or not, yeah, those armpit stains are horribly embarrassing when you're wearing a silk camisole and you're trying to give a speech at a luncheon. But the original, original root cause of them, their purpose was actually pretty cool. Our bodies are pretty amazing in this regard. So we talk about this a lot in Detox Your Thoughts. This is in the chapter about how easy it is for us to treat our mind and body separately when in reality, if we do that, that's just a trap that we fall into that makes us more and more mentally unhappy and more anxious. So let's think about how these things work together, how when we detect fear on a cognitive basis and we feel fear on an emotional basis, our body follows suit. So let's dig into this stuff, your body's responses in fight, flight, or freeze. Again, a lot of these are as old as time. We view them as nuisances. We view them as horrific obstacles. And most typically, we get anxious about the presence of these symptoms. So we start that whole anxiety about anxiety cycle, anxiety squared, feelings with exponents, So my goal today in talking through this is for you to be able to experience some of these symptoms and know that it's a natural adaptation, that your body's doing it for a reason, and that even if you don't have use for these symptoms anymore, it doesn't mean that they're going to hurt you, and it doesn't mean that they won't go away, and it doesn't mean that there's something to be afraid of. So let's start with heart palpitations or an increased heart rate. 
Why does this happen when we're scared or anxious? Because it boosts blood flow. It increases the amount of blood that our muscles can get. So if we have to run from a predator, our muscles are better prepared to do so. Of course, there's now a modern drawback to this when you're less likely to be running from a predator. Although I should say with any of these, if you're actually in a really physical confrontation, these same things that would have helped you 10,000 years ago will help you now. This is where we hear those amazing stories of somebody developing superhuman strength because of the epinephrine coursing through their body or adrenaline, some would say. I think there's kind of an American versus British fight about adrenaline versus epinephrine. And for that matter, noradrenaline versus norepinephrine. They're the same thing. Um Norepinephrine and epinephrine are not the same thing, although obviously they're very related. But what I mean is that epinephrine and adrenaline are the same thing as are noradrenaline and norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is a neurotransmitter, by the way. And we're not going to dig totally deep into the nervous system today. That was not my intention. This was not meant to be sort of a meditation for sleep. Um, Anyway, what happens now is that when your heart feels like it's beating out of your chest you might think you're having a heart attack. That feels like a threat in and of itself. You know, my guess is that people running from cave bears tens of thousands of years ago, they weren't thinking, "Uh uh-oh, do I need to check out my symptoms on WebMD? They were thinking, I need to get the heck away from this cave bear. Whereas nowadays, the symptoms themselves, the heart palpitation, the heart racing itself can be cause for concern. And this is where the anxious voice takes over. Am I having a heart attack? What's wrong with me? Can other people hear my heartbeat? Oh my God, right? So that's all about the heart palpitations. Classic, probably number one symptom of anxiety, honestly, is that your heart starts really, really beating faster. So your circulation obviously increases too. And what that means is that also blood flows, as I've mentioned, to those bigger muscle groups so that you can take flight, so that you can punch, so that you can run. But it means that it also flows away from your fingers and toes and your extremities, right? And so that's why you get those numb, shaky, cold hands. You might have tingly fingers, tingly feet, And this makes it really hard when you're trying to give a presentation and you have to pick up a pen and your fingers are shaking or you feel like you can't even hold something. Everybody's going to see that I've got tremors going on right now. You know, people that have natural tremors like essential tremors or some sort of Parkinsonian type symptoms, it can get even worse with anxiety, right? But again, this did seem to serve us well in the past because it allowed more blood flow to our big muscle groups. Breathing, we know that something happens with breathing. It gets shallower. Why does this happen? Well, it preserves oxygen for our major muscle groups once again so that the muscles can react better. We're not wasting air, right? The problem is this makes us feel like we can't get enough air right? This makes us feel like we don't actually have big enough breaths that we're taking. So this also could make you very anxious. Am I having a heart attack? I can't breathe. What's wrong with me, right? With digestion, it basically pauses. When we're in the throes of a major threat, 
our mind says, you know what, I'm not really worried about that burrito right now. Let's just leave that where that is. Let's concentrate our resources on more immediate concerns. Well, that's all fine and good because your body needs to devote its energy to fight, flight, or freeze, right? But in reality, what that means for us is that if digestion suddenly stops, we've got a bunch of stomach acid sitting in our stomach and that can make you feel sick or at the very least can make you feel like you have butterflies in your stomach, that classic thing. Now you're thinking, oh my God, I might throw up. I'm about to go on stage or I'm about to go on this date. I'm about to go into this performance evaluation and I'm going to puke, right? So you're telling yourself, oh, this is awful. I wish I didn't have this. But once again, it did serve a purpose because God knows you shouldn't have been bothering to be digesting something in the middle of running from this cave bear. I need to get a new example besides a cave bear. I used to say woolly mammoth, and then I realized I don't even think those are necessarily predators of humans way back in the day. (laughs) Obviously, I don't have enough sort of prehistoric zoologists in my life. We need to get in touch. Let's talk about your vision. Evolutionarily speaking, in fight or flight, the benefit of vision changes was that your pupils dilated, which increased your ability to take in the whole scene, to see threats farther away. Your pupils enlarged to be able to have more of a vantage point of what was going on. But the drawback of that now, of course, is that your vision gets weird. Maybe the light becomes glaring. You might even have black spots in your visual field. Some people say their vision gets kind of fuzzy. What's happening to me? I can't see straight. Again, now this feels like something you should be anxious over. But one of the ways that we can counteract that is to know that this is a natural experience. It's not going to hurt you. It was meant to be beneficial for you. And of course, it's not going to help you in that Zoom meeting when you're trying to look at your notes and be able to recite something. But... You shouldn't be threatened by it. It doesn't mean that something is going wrong. Okay, let's talk about your skin. I love this one. The idea of your hair standing on end. (laughs) There's a beautiful reason for this. And that's so that we could have appeared bigger to predators, right? I just love this. The idea that by making our hair stand on end, it was sort of nature's attempt to trick our predators and to say, hey, actually, you know, I might be five foot two. But with this new bouffant of arm hair, I'm actually bigger than I seem. Well, of course, this doesn't serve us now, right? Because this is where chills and goosebumps come in. Our skin feels weird and prickly. It feels unnerving. So it no longer helps us. But once again, remember, this wasn't meant to hurt us. This was okay. And the whole reason for that, again, made a lot of sense. It made us appear stronger. So maybe if you could do some sort of cognitive restructuring there, you know, ooh, I've got goosebumps. That's actually meant to make me feel stronger. That can be helpful. You might notice it if you have a dog. So good old Buster, he's part lab, part German Shepherd, maybe part 90 million other things. I don't know. That DNA test seemed really sketch. But basically, we can tell sometimes when he gets threatened, he will get that little, I don't know, is it a haunch? What is the word haunch? His, the top of his back, the hair will sort of stand on end. You can see that happening. That's that same evolutionary response. Good old Buster wants to appear bigger in those moments. 
even though he's 85 pounds and already seems like a menace in my big front picture window, he needs to appear bigger compared to that nine pound chihuahua that is walking by, right? There is a good reason for all this stuff. Let's talk about sweating. One of my personal favorites, the perspiration increases. Why? Because your body's increasing its heat generation. It's using more energy so it can prepare to run the heck away from the threat or fight it, of course. Again, freeze is part of this, but freeze isn't naturally what your body was supposed to do in those situations. It was more geared to fight or to take flight. So what happens when you sweat more? Well, nowadays, it doesn't really help you, does it? And this is more of a byproduct. This sweat is sort of the effect of the extra heat being generated. You know, the sweat appears then in order to try to cool your body down because internally you're burning up, right? You end up feeling cold and clammy. And of course, you got the fabulous pit stains now, which nobody seems to want I mean, why would they, right? But they're not the end of the world. Professors worldwide, as we're reaching up on chalkboards and there's maybe a little too much heat in our classroom and we're on our second lecture of the day, we worry about this stuff, right? So this is a problem. Ooh, now I'm sweaty. Everybody's going to look at me. Oh, this is embarrassing. What if I smell? I've got armpit stains. My face is shiny now. That's not going to look good under these lights. So again, though, what's the point of talking through any of this? It's to remind yourself this doesn't have to be a threat. Like, yeah, your students might point and snicker. I've never had any do that. Thank goodness. Thank you, Georgetown. But really, it's not going to harm you in terms of the actual reaction. There's nothing wrong with your body. It's working as it's supposed to, right? Finally, let's talk about muscle tension. So when your muscles are activated for action, They are going to get tight. They're summoning all their strength because you're supposed to be warding off an attack or fighting back or running. You know, your muscles are geared for action. They're pumped full of blood. They're ready to go with their full strength. Of course, this is what makes us so tight that we get headaches, backaches. We throw out our neck. We go to the masseuse or the masseur and they say, oh my goodness, you are tied up in knots here. You can't relax. You can't get comfortable. You you injure yourself. You feel like a ball of nerves, right? And this is where the stuff can hurt you over time, right? During the pandemic, especially people's muscle tension, hunched over computers, the stress and the agitation, and then coupled with the fact that they were staring at screens longer than they ever had before. Oh, every specialist that dealt with stuff from TMJ to back pain, any kind of masseuse, physical therapist, even neurologists, people had increased dizziness because of the ways that their jaws were being set and pressure on their inner ear. This isn't great for you over time. So although we've spent some time talking about how beautiful and wonderful and natural and evolutionary the fight or flight response is in the moment, it's meant to be fleeting, right? When our stress response becomes sustained, like in modern society, when the stressors are more chronic rather than just, oh, that cave bear was there and now he's gone we start to really feel the effects because the long-term stress response can start to wear down our body, 
right? And that's certainly worthy of another discussion. But what I want to say now as we wrap up is thinking about what you can do in the moment to make sure that the stress response, this fight, flight, or freeze, or this threat detection system isn't making you feel worse. We start with the idea of noticing these symptoms, and then most importantly, noticing the messages that you are telling yourself about them. That's where the work begins, right? If you're saying stuff like, my body's out of control, I can't handle this, this is terrifying, what's happening, what's wrong with me, what if this never goes away? Those are distortions, right? Those are distortions that we need to defuse from, we need to separate from. We need to have something more functional, more realistic, more valid, more positive to think about right? We can tell ourselves, this is a natural reaction of my body. It feels intense now, but this is a response that always passes with time. We can tell ourselves, anxiety feels naturally bad sometimes, but I'm learning to breathe through it. I'm learning to manage it. I'm learning to tolerate it. We can tell ourselves that it's okay that these sensations feel uncomfortable and scary, but I have the tools to get through this. This is a natural stress response. And when I can work to calm my body down, it will pass. The symptoms will begin to go away. This feels hard to get through, but these symptoms can't and won't hurt me, right? That's the important part to remember. And this is what emergency room doctors often (laughs) don't really recognize. You know, they say, oh, you're fine. It was just a panic attack. And the person's like, just a panic attack? What the heck? It felt horrendous, right? And emergency room doctors are like, well, you're fine. It didn't hurt you, whatever. There's nothing wrong with your heart or anything like that. They don't educate people exactly about the fact. Well, some do. I, I love some emergency room staff. I'm not trying to besmirch their good name. They work really, really hard, but they don't have time really to sit people down and say, look, this did feel amazingly scary. It felt physically very similar to a heart attack. You were suffering. It made sense that you felt frightened. These symptoms are real. They're not just in your head. They're your body's response. Your body went in threat overdrive. It was really frightening, but it's not going to harm you. What's going to be difficult is if we develop anxiety about this anxiety. And of course, that's where panic disorder can come in. But this key here is to examine those messages, to restructure those messages, to tell yourself, it stinks that I'm feeling this way right now, but this is a natural response of my body and it can pass and I can help it pass through whatever I can use to target those exact symptoms. If my heartbeat is out of control, I can slow it down with some deep diaphragmatic breathing exercises in slowly through the nose, out through the mouth. If I feel butterflies in my stomach, those will help as well. If my muscle tension feels out of control and my fists are really clenched, I can do some progressive muscle relaxation and make sure that I reduce some of that muscle tension. Notice where in your body you feel it. That's what we got at last episode for most of the other emotions. Today, we really want to focus on noticing in your body where you feel this threat response. Because I promise you, your body's trying to help in that situation. It really is. It feels like our worst enemy, but it's trying to help. We just need to learn how to neutralize it. 
And you really can by telling yourself that you are safe. I am safe. This is my body's natural anxiety response and I can get through it. It feels uncomfortable, but that's not the same thing as dangerous. Okay, thanks for hanging in there with me today. Even if you don't have full-fledged panic attacks, you can probably recognize yourself with some of these anxiety symptoms. And of course, you know, sometimes there's something physically wrong. I don't want to diminish that. A lot of autoimmune things, thyroid things, certainly some symptoms of long COVID can mimic some of this stuff with the heart rate and the shortness of breath and all of this. So we're really talking about situations where you know that, you know, there's a threat that's there and that's why you're feeling this. Of course, people with panic disorder, it's a false threat, right? They're sometimes going into panic attacks precisely because they're afraid of having a panic attack, but there's no actual threat there. Other times for some of us, it's a false threat as in it's not a woolly mammoth, but it's just our boss who hopefully is not a woolly mammoth. But point being, these are situations where it is that psychological response to threat that is causing these symptoms rather than, you know, you have mitral valve prolapse or something in your heart. So always a good idea to get checked out regularly by a doctor just to make sure that everything is okay. But so many of us can be helped just by learning on a psychological level where this stuff comes from. Okay, so with that, as always, reach out, let me know your thoughts, your questions, and I'll look forward to seeing you, hearing you, I guess, talking at you in two weeks. No matter what my outro music says, yes, full disclosure, I've been too lazy to exactly fix the fact that it still says every Tuesday and Friday because that involves actually overlaying new music, et cetera, et cetera. Buster's uh, music engineering skills are still not up to snuff. But anyway, thank you for being here and I'll be with you again in two weeks. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time. Take good care.